0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Harnessing the Power of the Immune System to Manage Higher Risk MDS
1: is provided by Access Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled Harnessing the Power of the Immune System to Manage Higher Risk MDS. I'm Dr. Andrew Bruner, and I'm an assistant professor at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and at Harvard Medical School here in Boston, Massachusetts. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing the off-label use of approved agents, as well as discussing the use of agents that are in clinical development. And here are my financial disclosures. We have a number of learning objectives. We are planning to discuss how we implement biomarking testing and prognostic scoring systems to define what is higher risk MDS and help inform treatment of that disease. We're going to discuss the evolving role of the immune system in MDS, including a number of pathways in dysregulation, including TIM3 and CD47. We'll be reviewing results of several immunologic-directed therapies, including TIM3, combination with HMAs as well as CD47 inhibiting agents in combination with HMAs for the treatment of higher risk MDS. And then we'll be discussing management of complications in MDS that might be related both to existing therapies as well as emerging or novel treatments. And so first of all, how do we define what higher risk MDS is in the first place? So we have a patient in front of us who presents with a number of symptoms related to their MDS. The most common presenting symptom of MDS is anemia, but many patients will have infectious complications or easy bruising or recurrent bleeding that bring them to medical attention. Often the progression to medical attention is slow and can be insidious in a number of patients. Patients actually have low enough blood counts that they cause clinical problems. When we're identifying a case of MDS, and when I meet a patient in clinic, one of the first things I try to do is understand how MDS, how to best subclassify their disease. There's a lot of ways that we have to classify MDS. So one of the ways that we can subgroup it is by what specific pathological subgroup it is. So we have been historically using the WHO classification. There are a few new classification systems that have just been proposed and recently published here in 2022, the ICCC and the WHO updates. And so we use pathological, blood count, and molecular cytogenetic characteristics of the disease in order to box that MDS into a group that behaves similar to other patients who have that subtype of disease. And so one of the first things we do is try to characterize what type of MDS a given patient might have. Beyond simply morphologic assessment and assessing a patient by the pathology, we also try to characterize disease according to what's going to happen to that patient. And so anytime somebody comes to clinic with a possible new MDS, you know, we'll do lab work to identify the type and depth of their cytopenias. It involves a CBC and differential. We do a full karyotype of patients, and we get a bone marrow core and aspirate. And we also do a broad panel of molecular diagnostics. And Molecular testing is increasingly important in both the classification of MDS, the diagnosis of MDS, as well as the risk stratification. Now, recently, we have really relied upon the IPSS-R to best classify patients uh, as far as their disease risk meaning what's going to happen to them after the diagnosis and what is the ness that we'll need to intervene. Um, but there are a lot of other tools that we have used and that I use in practice, uh, depending on the scenario. So for lower risk patients, I might try to further classify them. There's a low risk prognostic scoring system. The WPSS is a nice scoring system that has prognostic information across Uh, the history of disease, Um, and recently published was the IPSS molecular that incorporates uh, many of the same risk factors that are used in the IPSS-R, but also uses molecular profile of that MDS to better characterize what is likely to happen to that patient. And so here is the IPSS-R and how each variable in that scoring system is weighted, We score, prognosticate based on generally three things, how low the blood counts are. So this uses hemoglobin, platelets, and neutrophil count to try to add a certain amount of risk. You can imagine people who have lower blood counts have an increased amount of risk. People whose blood counts are more stable may not have as much risk. It uses blast percentage in the bone marrow. And so similarly, a higher percentage of blasts makes sense that they would be at higher risk of progressing to leukemia or having a complication of disease and having a low or normal blast count is lower risk of those endpoints. And then the big advantage that the IPSSR had over prior scoring systems, and one that we still use now is that it collected cytogenetic information on many patients. And so we get very granular risk based on cytogenetics shown here is the how their categories between very good, good, intermediate, poor, and very poor features of the cytogenetic analysis that may influence the risk of progression or death. Recently published is the molecular IPSS, which is adds on to many of the features of IPSSR, also molecular profile. And you can see here in the Kaplan-Meyer curve, that this risk stratification system does a very good job at distinguishing patients who are going to live with disease. These patients are older, and so in the very low-risk group, they essentially coexist with their disease, and that's an important feature to find because these are patients where you can really predict that they'll have a long period of disease and that management of symptoms or side effects of the MDS itself are probably more relevant. It also does a very good job at predicting patients who have a a very high risk of a complication of their disease within months. So more than half of patients in the very high-risk group have either progressed to leukemia or died within months after diagnosis. This is a high-risk group that really needs intervention early. And then there's a widespread of patients that have different courses of disease according to their risk. And it nicely bifurcates patients into kind of a three higher risk groups where within two and a half years, they will have complications of disease and three lower risk groups where their risk of immediate progression is relatively lower. A number of mutations stand out. And these kind of coexist with some of the work that had been done prior to this analysis. So the presence of P53 multi-hit mutations are very poor risk in this data set and identify a patient subgroup that's at high risk of leukemia or of death from their disease in the near term. And there are rare subgroups, although when you look at a population level, they really add up for instance, with mll or with FLT3 mutations, they also are at risk of disease worsening or progression to leukemia. There are also patients that we confirm from this data have a more favorable clinical course, So SF3B1 mutations, in particular, certain SF3B1 mutations that don't have certain higher risk co-mutations. These patients live a long time with their disease and their management really differs from people who are going to have complications within a year. And so when I meet a patient with MDS, I'm really trying to prognosticate what's going to happen to you in the coming year. Do I need to treat you to try to uh, impact your disease? Or are you going to coexist with this? So I risk stratify patients. And then I really think about this. What, do you have a risk of a serious or life-threatening complication, infection, and bleeding being the most immediate problems generally from the cytopenias themselves? Or do you have a risk of progressing to acute myeloid leukemia? And I think it's important to recognize that all these scoring systems are imperfect. They don't always line up. And especially as we learn more, I often am using multiple scoring systems, especially for people who don't seem to, quote unquote, be behaving as we expect from their disease risk. So if monitoring somebody over time, they don't seem to fall into that low risk group that you think they are. It may be that using a different scoring system does identify a higher risk feature that merits consideration of some different approach to treatment. So, how do we define what is higher risk MDS and what to do with those patients? Really, we want to find patients where the benefit from chemotherapy or transplant outweighs the risks of the toxicities of those therapies themselves. And so, again, using all these metrics, most of our trials with azacitidine were based on the old IPSS score, so that would be intermediate two or high risk patients. Those patients are the ones who benefited most from azacitidine. But there are other ways that we think about it. So patients with IPSSR score greater than three point five, patients in the top three IPSSM risk categories, patients whose disease has progressed from prior therapy especially patients who you thought were low-risk, but they have now had their disease progress on multiple lines of therapy. And in particular, the role of molecular mutations that impact risks, like tp 53 um, AML-like mutations like FLT3 or NLL-PTD. So here's an example of a patient I might see in clinic. patient, JB, is an 80-year-old woman. She comes to clinic, she's had a progressive anemia. Again, the most common presenting symptom being anemia. She has a blood count showing that her white count is two. She has a fairly low neutrophil count, 600. Her hemoglobin is at eight grams per deciliter, and she has a platelet count of 45. And so if you look at her blood counts, the most immediate, potentially symptomatic blood count is probably her hemoglobin. But you do have to consider... If her platelets are further dropping, does she have a bleeding diathesis that you haven't explored yet? She may have some shortness of breath that brings her in. Prompted a bit of bone marrow biopsy. She has a hypercellular marrow. There are 12% c for positive blasts, no ringsitter blasts. And on her cytogenetic analysis, she has 46XX with a del 7q identified. So if you look at her molecular studies, she had a panel tested at baseline, and She has mutations identified in BCOR, SYBL, and U2AF1. Now, I think it is important to think about panel-based testing, for instance, in this uh, scenario, um, especially as it impacts prognosis and with these new scoring metrics that involve um, a number of mutations in assessing the risk. Um, you'll notice that B courseible and UCF1, at least right now, do not have an approved therapeutic target. Um, even though they, uh, there are some that are in uh, clinical trials to try to target these. Um, the main benefit of getting this mutation profile is to allow you to get better understanding of her disease risk, and indeed. By incorporating these mutations into her risk profile, you can estimate that she has very high risk MDS, that uh, within a year, her risk of progression to leukemia or of dying of some complication of her MDS is, is quite high and that you'd want to start some form of treatment for her. Higher-risk MDS, the backbone of therapy remains the use of the so-called hypomethylating agents or DNA methyltransferase inhibitors. The AZA-001 trial built upon an older CAGB study that showed that azacitidine has a survival benefit compared to conventional care Patients could receive either transfusion support, AML-like chemotherapy, or low-dose citerabine in the ASA 001 arm, and there was a survival benefit in that trial that has yet to be improved upon in phase three clinical trials in MDS. And so azacitidine and, to another degree, d remain our standards of care in mds And a lot of effort has been ongoing to try to identify ways to improve upon the therapy that they offer. Although they remain our standard backbone therapies, and they do provide a survival benefit compared to patients who don't receive hypomethylene agents, it is also true that they are imperfect therapies. This is a nice analysis looking at the five-year survival of patients who start on either azacitidine or dicitabine in the US population, so population-based registry analysis. And it showed that by five years, under 5% of people are alive. And so even though we institute these therapies for our patients, we really have to move the marker to a higher point because the reality is that this five-year survival is worse than many other cancers and we have yet to really improve upon it. So how can we? Well, we have known for some time that transplant, allogeneic transplant, seems to be a a potential therapy for many patients with MDS, especially as we learn how to more safely administer transplant to patients who are older. Median age of patients with MDS is in their 70s, and so being able to extend transplant to select patients who are older um, really has a big impact in our thinking about MDS and higher risk MDS in particular. There have been some nice studies recently showing that patients who undergo transplant going to transplant early, so early referral to transplant within the first several months after high-risk MDS diagnosis, shown here from the BMT-CTN-1102 trial, can be associated with improved survival. Those patients who were able to go with a donor to transplant early on show an early separation and survival curve that persists throughout this study. We also have learned that that we can extend conditioning regimens more safely to older patients. So shown here is a trial randomizing myeloablative conditioning compared to reduced intensity conditioning in patients with MDS. We show that survival is fairly similar, although patients who are receiving a reduced intensity transplant do have a higher rate of cumulative relapse. So how do we further refine use of transplant in MDS patients? and this is particularly relevant to high-risk MDS patients. Well, one thing that we can do is we can understand how mutation profiles influence transplant outcomes. So shown here is a nice study. This also utilized CIBMTR data set to evaluate how pre-transplant mutation profile impacts post-transplant outcomes. One of the things that we find here that we also see in the upfront diagnosis is the patients with P53 mutations They remain a high-risk patient cohort, even with transplant, that they really need new approaches to treatment. Similarly, there are certain high-risk mutations for younger patients that are worth evaluating, again, bringing to light how our understanding of the clonal profile of MDS plays an increasing role in how we tailor therapy down the line and also identifies patients who really need new treatments at diagnosis. With transplant and perhaps even after transplant. We're getting hints, I guess, at how to improve upon transplant or how to identify even high risk patients that may benefit more. One of those things is if we are going to use a reduced intensity conditioning regimen, we just saw that those patients have a higher rate of post transplant relapse. And can we do something to improve their disease control pre transplant in order to try to yield a better post transplant outcome? and so shown here is a nice analysis of that, that same study that randomized patients to a reduced intensity versus myeloablative conditioning it showed that patients who have myeloablative conditioning their pre-transplant molecular burden doesn't seem to matter as much um, in predicting post-transplant relapse however for patients who received a reduced intensity conditioning regimen which again are the majority of patients who will undergo transplant with MDS most patients are older And so if you're going to consider a transplant, many of them would be better candidates or maybe only be candidates for reduced intensity regimens. Those patients who have a higher disease burden pre-transplant really do have a higher rate of relapse. And so how do we improve upon our current therapeutic a repertoire for um, high-risk MDS. And one of the things that I'm going to talk about in particular is how we can think of the immune system in MDS. Um, Transplant, we spent some time on because it is one of the ways in which we most manipulate the immune system. It's our original immunotherapy um, to replace uh, the immune system completely, replace the bone marrow, and to evoke some sort of graft-versus-leukemia effect. And so how can we use what we've learned over the last decades in the care of MDS to try to identify novel therapeutics and particular immune-based therapies for this disease? And so we know that, as mentioned, there is evidence that after transplant, one of the ways in which transplant may be effective at long-term cures in MDS, not just the intensity of treatment that you can deliver Pre transplant with conditioning therapy, and not just the fact that you've replaced the bone marrow with a healthier, quote unquote, bone marrow, but there is also likely a graft versus leukemia effect. And we see this indirectly, for instance, through the way in which chronic graft versus host disease seems to be associated with lower rates of relapse, not just in AML and other cancers, but also in MDS patients who are transplanted for MDS who develop some degree of chronic graft versus host disease. Those patients do seem to have lower rates of long-term relapse. and so That's one way in which we can try to manipulate the immune surveillance. This is graft-versus-leukemia effect, but even in patients who don't have a donor graft, can we manipulate the existing T-cells to act more like donor cells and elicit some sort of intrinsic T-cell-versus-leukemia effect? Then we also are increasingly understanding how alterations in our immune system loss of immune surveillance, chronic inflammation, how all of these play a role in the expansion of and progression of MDS. And I think that where this has really become an interesting field is our understanding of clonal hematopoiesis. As we get better and better tools, we see that more and more people will have some degree of clonal hematopoiesis that can be characterized as we age, and that something changes when we get into our 60th, 70th Year of life where suddenly those clonal populations can expand and become a dominant producer of our blood. And so while they expand and they become a larger the section of our blood that's produced by that clonal population, they're also not as good at it. So we have a higher and higher percentage of our blood made by this. Same clone, and yet we become more and more anemic or thrombocytopenic in a certain subset of patients that then go on to frankly progress or present with MDS. So, how do we understand how this evolving change in our immune surveillance and the inflammatory microenvironment? How does that permit the progression of MDS? And so. One of the ways that we might learn how to use the immune system in MDS is by thinking of how allogeneic transplant interacts with MDS and AML cells to elicit a graft-versus-leukemia effect and what role that plays in the prevention of relapse. If we understand how we get that effect from allogeneic transplant, can we then take that effect and try to use it in MDS or other myeloid neoplasms to try to teach our own intrinsic T cells, not cells that get donated, but teach our own T cells how to recognize leukemic progenitors and how to eradicate them and so you can see here an example of how our understanding of the allogeneic transplant interacts with cd8 and cd4 positive t cells but also with antigen presenting cells as well as other cells that are involved in innate and adaptive immunity these can include macrophages these can include nk cells i think as we learn more about it we are understanding that it's really an orchestra that we're having many different cell populations activated against the leukemic cells to maintain disease control. And so that idea that we can reactivate the immune system has been explored somewhat, especially in the post-transplant setting. This was an interesting paper now about eight years ago where patients who had MDS or AML received immune checkpoint inhibition. This was with a CTLA-4 inhibitor ipilimumab and number of patients had responses. Perhaps some of the most interesting, though, were a number of patients with AML or MDS who had relapse in the skin or extramedullary disease. And after administering checkpoint inhibitor, they seemed to recover graft-versus-leukemia effect and eradicate these sites of extramedullary disease. And I think this really was one of the first... Clinical examples that fueled the field to try to understand how can we better use the immune system as a therapeutic in the treatment of MDS or AML. So, since that time, we've started to test a number of canonical ICIs or immune checkpoint inhibitors in MDS. Uh, canonical, meaning, um, I guess, agents that are directed toward either CTLA4 or toward PD1 and PDL1. Uh, you, you know, these were some of the earlier discovered targets in solid tumors. Uh, A lot of our uh, experience in MDS or AML or other blood cancers with the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors really came out of the solid tumor experience um, and trying to recapitulate that in uh, hematologic malignancies. Here's an example of a randomized trial. And I think that this kind of illustrates one of the difficulties that we have with directly incorporating some of the discoveries that have been found in solid tumors. So you can see that there was no significant difference between these two arms. One of these arms was azacitidine with dervalumab added to it, and the other was azacitidine alone. And so the overall response rate was not significantly different. You can see that there's a numerically higher number of patients who responded in the combination arm, but those responses are really driven by an increase in the number of patients who had a marrow CR. And I think this illustrates how challenging it is for us to characterize our responses in MDS into meaningful responses. So a marrow CR means that you had increased blasts typically and that they have decreased by at least half to less than 5%, but it doesn't have any necessary linking to the improvement in blood counts as well. And so it's challenging because it's hard to know, are these patients benefited by the use of this therapy? combination. If you look at the marrow CR rate, if they have suppression of their blasts, does that translate into anything meaningful? One of the ways to assess it is really by looking at survival, seeing that there was no real difference between overall survival or progression-free survival. So even though there may be some variability in response, again, not significant in this study, having an early randomized study that looks at the combination with a checkpoint inhibitor compared to azacitidine alone really helps to flesh out what we would expect with these agents. I think another challenge with immune checkpoint inhibitors and in MDS is shown here. In this study, a atezolizumab was added to azacitidine. This was a frontline study, and it was on the same premise of looking at whether we could not just give a society team, but also somehow stimulate the immune system to better control disease long-term. And so shown here are several cohorts of patients and their treatment history. A high number of patients had either toxicity from the combination, and so had to come off of treatment with atezolizumab relatively early in the course, or patients who had early deaths and kind of prohibiting the full administration of drug. And so from these studies, I think what we've learned is that we, we can't simply directly translate discoveries that might be found in solid tumors or other cancers directly into our treatment paradigm of MDS, that we need to be a little bit more thoughtful of how the disease interacts with the immune system and also what toxicity profiles our patients with MDS, again, mostly in their 70s, are able to tolerate. I think at the same time, we've learned that as we age, we have a, a number of changes in our immune system that coexist even just with aging itself. So you don't need to develop a blood cancer to see a number of alterations, your inflammatory profile. We see changes in TNF, alpha, IL-1 levels in patients. And I think that increasingly we've understood how our these inflammatory microenvironment may actually permit expansion of mutated clones in our bone marrow and may play a role in the direct pathogenesis of MDS, if not in facilitating ongoing clonal expansion over time. That's led us to kind of ask, well, is there a way that we can target some of these newer uh, markers in the immune system, in inflammatory uh, cytokines um, or their uh, receptors on cells themselves? And can we uh, inhibit those uh, as a way of targeting both the microenvironment and possibly the MDS uh, blast themselves? And so some of the cells that interact with MDS... Have led to the discovery of some new targets, not just PD1, PDL1, CTLA4, but a number of markers that may be more relevant directly to MDS. One of those markers is a cell surface marker called TIM3. Now, TIM3 is normally part of a natural feedback loop. When a T cell recognizes a tumor cell and kills it, as more tumor cells die, they release a number of ligands that interact with TIM3, phosphatoserine, galactin 9, and those result in a suppressive phenotype in the T-cells, so basically kind of telling the T-cells your job here is done, you've killed the tumor cell. And what we have recently discovered is that TIM3, or T-cell immunoglobulin domain and mucin domain 3, appears to be expressed on a number of our immune cells. It's also aberrantly expressed on leukemic progenitors. And this aberrant expression may be a target that we can utilize in MDS. And so shown here is a nice little diagram of TIM3 on the surface of a T cell. So again, it interacts with a dying tumor cell. And one of the ways in which it plays a role is when a tumor cell is dying, it binds to glycine-9 or serine, and then that increases this exhaustion phenotype in the T cells to downregulate the T cell response. So if you inhibit that interaction, could you actually improve immune surveillance of leukemic progenitors or other tumor cells and improve upon their treatment? So there's some evidence that perhaps TIM3 plays a role in immune escape through that mechanism. Here's a study looking at patients who are relapsed after transplant. So again, in transplant, you've got donor T cells that are thought to have some role in identifying any residual leukemic progenitors or MDS progenitors, surveilling for those and and then eradicating them with a graft-versus-leukemic effect. In patients who relapse after transplant, it's been noted that they seem to have an increase in PD-1 and TIM3 expression on the donor T-cells. So while not conclusive evidence, it is suggestive that there is some degree of immune escape that plays a role in relapse after transplant, that you lose whatever graft-versus-leukemia effect may be there. I think another aspect of TIM3, not just this role that it plays on T cells, makes it an interesting molecule, is that it also appears to be expressed on the leukemic progenitors themselves. There's some data to suggest that TIM3 may actually even be able to help us distinguish between a leukemic progenitor or a leukemic stem cell and distinguish that from a otherwise healthy hematopoietic progenitor, that there's this expression of TIM3 on the cell surface that may be a marker to distinguish the two and may also play some role in these cells and the leukemic progenitor progression. So shown here is an interesting study. This is a CML model, but there was also other models where you see progression from chronic to accelerated to blast phase disease. And during that progression from chronic to accelerate to blast phase disease, you see an increase in the percentage of stem cells that have TIM3. So is TIM3 signaling somehow important in that progression state? And one of the ways in which it's proposed that it is important is that potentially TIM3 results in a self-renewal autocrine uh, stimulation loop so that blasts that express TIM3 release galactin-9, That binds to the TIM3 and somehow allows these blasts to persist and expand. And so does TIM3 expression have to do perhaps with clonal progression over time? It's been explored therapeutically in certain preclinical models, whether targeting TIM3 may be able to actually be a therapeutic avenue in AML. Again, with the idea that TIM3 might be apparently expressed on leukemic progenitors. This is a model where mice were transplanted with leukemic cells and then either received antibody to TIM3 injected several times a week or received control antibody, so either IgG, and then went to subsequent transplant and were evaluated for their ability to serially transplant. What it found is that giving IgG alone did not seem to have any effect on the ability to serially transplant these mice. But if you gave a TIM3 antibody, presumably interrupting the self-renewal loop, um, that you could no longer serially transplant these mice, suggesting, yes, that perhaps this, is, this target has something to do with the persistence and expansion of leukemic progenitors in, in myeloid neoplasia now we'll we'll pause here and show a brief video clip illustrating the mechanism of action of the TIM3 pathway and this novel immunologic myeloid therapy.
0: T-cell immunoglobulin and mucin domain 3 or TIM3 is an inhibitory receptor expressed on the surface of multiple immune cell types, leukemic stem cells, and malignant blast cells. However, TIM3 is not expressed on hematopoietic stem cells responsible for normal hematopoiesis. This immune myeloid regulator has a role in modulating immune responses, making it a novel therapeutic target in the treatment of myeloid malignancies. Let's take a closer look at how novel immunomyeloid therapy targets and binds to TIM3 on immune and myeloid cells. Higher risk myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS and acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, are characterized by immune dysfunction. In higher-risk MDS, the overproduction of malignant blast cells results in dysregulation of the immune system and impairment of normal hematopoietic stem cell differentiation, resulting in cytopenias. The TIM3 receptor on immune cells is bound by its ligands, phosphatidylserine, and galactin-9. This binding may lead to dysregulated immune responses and an impaired anti-tumor response that can result in the continued overproduction of blast cells. TIM3-targeted immunomyeloid therapy binds to the TIM3 receptor, thereby blocking and preventing the phosphatidylserine and galactin-9 ligands from binding TIM3. Targeting TIM3 may also potentially reawaken the immune system by enhancing immune activation, leading to the death of malignant blast cells and inhibition of leukemic stem cell activity. Therefore, blockade of the TIM3 receptor with immunomyeloid therapy may restore immune function while also directly targeting leukemic stem cells and leukemia blast cells.
1: I was involved in a study, along with a number of other investigators, looking at uh, TIM3 antibody, so sabatolamab, and combining it with hypomethylating agents in MDS and AML. This was a study that was looking at uh, patients who had very high-risk or high-risk MDS, as well as patients with newly diagnosed AML, and they were treated with dicitabine or azacitidine combined with escalating doses of the antibody sabatolamab. Was administered an escalating doses on day 8 or 22 of a 28-day treatment cycle. And really, the initial goal was just to see, could we safely combine these two agents and to get a sense of maybe signals about how it influences responses. In the study, we... We're able to combine the two agents, and we could manage adverse events as they arose, shown here are the most commonly occurring adverse events in the study. So predominant adverse events, again, this was in combination with azacitin or really were thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, anemia, and febrile neutropenia. I think it's always hard in combinations to know what impact the second agent has on the overall profile But I think it's encouraging that there was a very low rate of dose modification of Sabtolinab. Only one out of 101 patients had a dose reduction. And there were a number of patients who had dose interruptions, so a delay of a week or more due to some toxicity. But... No patients really discontinued therapy with MDS, and only three of the AML patients actually discontinued treatment due to an AE. So While those are indirect measures, I think it does show that we can administer these two together and that patients can stay on them for a long time. There was one patient who had neutropenic colitis that was suspected to possibly be related to study treatment. No other deaths were attributed to treatment in this, and Again, there's only one DLT and AML, no, none in the MDS cohort of this study. If we look at the response rates, so the, kind of the first metric you're going to get out of any study is um, the response to therapy. Shown here this is the overall response rate across the MDS patients of 57%. to so 29 out of 51 patients, about 20% of those with uh, remission, another 24% with marrow CR, half of those patients having hematologic improvement 4% with PR and 10% with stable disease, but with hematologic improvement. We looked at some of the higher risk mutation subgroups within this uh, cohort, you know, relatively small studies, so hard to lump a lot of patients together just yet, but of those patients with P53 mutations or patients who had a high risk ELN mutation uh, with MDS, uh, these patients did not seem to have variation in their chances of response compared to the overall cohort shown here also is the AML cohort based on mutation. And again, fairly similar responses regardless of mutation profile for the AML patients as well. The duration of responses to this combination shown here the median duration of response across the cohort uh, was 17 months with a little over half patients not progressing by uh, one year. Uh, The duration of response varied according to the quality of response. So patients who had a remission had a median duration of response of 19 months and the upper limit not reached, whereas patients who had marrow CR and hematologic improvement, their median duration was about eight months. Again, with a long tail on that. Too few patients to really interpret fully, so this is being analyzed in future studies as well. I think interesting Finding that will need to be followed up is whether patients, who, instance, who had TP53 mutations or ELN high-risk mutation, they had also long durations of responses, the PPD3 21 months and ELN high-risk 16 months. So if that really does hold true, it perhaps suggests areas of further evaluation in this combination. Independently, we've looked at what happens to these patients who receive sabotolinab and then go on to transplant. Uh, It's a relatively small cohort, but one of the things you might worry about in patients who are receiving any immune-directed therapy is do they have toxicity after transplant when we're manipulating the immune system? Antibody therapies linger, and so you do want to take into account whether that has any impact. So we identified patients who had been on this trial for any indication, so relapsed refractory AML, unfit de novo AML, higher very high risk MDS, CMML, who had received sabotolimab in combination, and then gone on to transplant. And we found that many of the patients they were older, median age sixty-seven, up to seventy-seven being transplanted, the largest group of the cohort had MDS, but enriched for high-risk features, which is what you would expect from the way the trial enrolled. And a third of them had a CR, but many patients proceeded to transplant with less than CR responses to the sabotol NAB plus HMA regimen that they received. As expected, most patients had reduced intensity conditioning, again, not being associated with we worry about higher risk of relapse and high-risk subject cohorts, and most were unrelated donor. Here's the mutation profile of the cohorts. It's hard to lump together a group that had like enough mutations to look specifically at one mutation group. We did have six patients each, either with a TP53 mutation or with a RAS pathway mutation. I bring those up because those have been identified previously as groups that have a high rate of relapse after transplant. And so so while certainly we're not powered to fully evaluate whether those patients actually do better than might be expected historically, we might at least get some insight into these mutation groups. So GVHD being of paramount concern with any post-transplant regimen that has had prior immuno-checkpoint inhibition. We saw acute GVHD in 16 out of the patients, but very few with grade three or four acute GVHD, only four. Chronic GVHD requiring immunosuppression occurred in eight patients. They all have not died or relapsed at the time of the data cut. Of note one, patient also received a PD-1 inhibitor, had some grade two skin GVHD. Here is the survival and relapse-free survival curve. And so with a median follow-up of about two years, reasonable outcomes of survival, somewhere around 70% of patients alive and largely survival mirroring the relapse rate. And so I think encouraging data that this can be administered, we did not see a clear difference according to RAS mutation. P53, again, hard to assess completely. they they appeared to do more poorly than P53 wild-type patients. This remains a challenging group, but some patients were able to have longer-term survival. So sabotolimab is being evaluated across a number of MDS and AML trials, including several randomized studies in phase 2 and phase 3 setting that we're looking forward to seeing some of that data reported out. But then also as triplets, um, I think our experience in the doublet setting suggests that you know the profile can be added to others so it'll be interesting to see whether that uh, remains true for venetoclax combinations or mackerelab combinations that are on the horizon and so while TIM3 represents one way in which we are targeting the immune system in MDS. Uh, there are other uh, advanced studies um, looking at other immune targets, and the other major one um, is probably CD47. CD47 it may play an important role in MDS, uh, immune surveillance we know that in cancer cd47 indicates don't eat me signal that may be expressed by tumor cells to help them evade macrophage surveillance this is an important marker on healthy cells as well perhaps the most relevant to mds is that aging red blood cells express cd47 which means that they persist in our circulation longer but also means that we have to consider cd47 expressing tissues Um, when we administer an antibody to this target. And so if we think about how CD47 may have a role in MDS, tumor cells typically would uh, express CD47 as a way to evade macrophages. Macrophages have SERP alpha on their cell surface and this interacts with CD47. That interaction kind of down-regulates macrophage-directed phagocytosis. Administering an antibody that blocks that interaction can then help uh, that stimulate macrophages and result in um, control of CD47-expressing cells. It was shown here that CD47 administration in combination with azocytidine seems to have a distinct synergy. So in this experiment, 5F9 is the CD47 molecule you could see here in a number of leukemic cells that administering azocytidine alone or 5F9 alone seems to have maybe a little bit of survival benefit compared to administering saline. But the combination in this model really shows the best survival. And if you look at reasons why this may occur, one of those is thought to be that CD47 upregulates the azocytidine upregulates calreticulin. And then that upregulation of calreticulin serves as a a marker to stimulate the macrophage-induced phagocytosis. So, megrolinab and azacitidine are being explored in high-risk MDS. This is data from uh, one of the earlier studies, a single-arm study looking at untreated, intermediate, high or very high-risk MDS patients, or patients with AML ineligible for induction. It did a ramp-up of migrulamab and azacitidine to confirm safety and then expanded patients to evaluate safety and efficacy, overall survival, as well as looking at CD47 occupancy or activity of immune cells after administration. Here are the patient characteristics of both arms, the MDS arm and the AML arm. Since this report, there have been additional patients enrolled. As you might expect, patients were older with MDS and AML. Patients tended to have unfavorable risk disease. A majority of patients in MDS having poor risk cytogenetics. And the majority of patients having high or very risk IPSSR scores or very high risk. There are also a number of patients that were enrolled to the study with therapy-related disease, and a relatively high number of patients who were enrolled with a P53 mutation, which is important because it may lend some insight into where this is being evaluated. One of the things to note with using a CD47-directed therapy, and probably most relevant for if this therapy that becomes an approved clinical practice, is that Again, CD47 is expressed on aging red cells. And so the administration of migrolumab results in an initial drop in hemoglobin. And that can vary a lot. So some patients will have a relatively mild drop, but some patients with the first dosing can have a more significant hemolysis and really need fairly intensive transfusion support. And so being prepared for that is important if you're taking care of patients who are on this combination. The transfusion Support needed drops pretty dramatically after the first few doses, and it is, you know, it it, uh, once you've cleared "quote unquote" these old, older CD47 positive red cells, you do not see as much hemolysis. But it is important. I, for instance, reach out to my blood bank, let them know that I'm going to have a CD47 patient. They do need to know that to be able to type and cross-match so that you can then, uh, you know, be prepared for potential transfusion support that's transient but relevant. What kind of activity have we seen with this agent? So most of the activity reported to date is from the single arm study and showing really mostly response rates as well as some preliminary signals for survival. And so the overall response rate seems to be high, especially in MDS. There's an encouraging rate of remissions reported in the trials that have been presented so far. Many patients will have also a reduction in the blasts in the marrow. I think that an integrated response here is important, but that many patients can have benefit from this. Also, survival, preliminary survival signals seem to be encouraging. There's just an update shown at EHA, single arm survival on this combination. Um, What we need and what we're really hoping for in MDS in general is more data from uh, phase two and phase three studies to identify what kind of survival patterns we see, if there's particular subgroups that benefit most, and also just to get a sense of how it might compare to azacitidine monotherapy. So I think that's a good chance to say, uh, to reflect on where we stand in treatment of higher-risk MDS. Um, higher-risk MDS is defined in many ways. Uh, for example, with our patient uh, that we were discussing um, earlier on in this uh, presentation, she was older. She had a number of high-risk features, including increased blasts. She had pancytopenia, and she had a high-risk cytogenetic abnormality, del7q, as well as a number of uh, mutations that bestowed higher risk to her disease as well. And so, when you meet somebody who has these features, you worry: if I don't do anything, or if we, if left untreated, um, you know, they're likely to have a, com- a complication within the coming months uh, or within a year. And so, based on that, this is kind of the way I often think about patients. Again, outcomes remain unsatisfactory regardless of what treatment we choose right now in MDS. So I think it's always appropriate to consider a clinical trial at any stage of treatment. The first question I am often asking is Can this patient get through an egg transplant and would they be a candidate for that? Because even though that is also not curative for all patients, it does provide a longer term benefit for those patients who are otherwise able to proceed. In evaluating them, age is a, associated with a number of uh, features uh, that may prohibit transplant, but age itself, I don't always consider uh, contraindication. So I do try to work very closely with my transplant team to have somebody evaluated early on in the diagnosis of MDS uh, that has higher risk features. If they are a candidate, I sometimes I'm wondering, is there a way I can optimize their disease? Transplant doesn't happen overnight. Even though I don't want to really delay proceeding to transplant, many patients will proceed to some form of uh, chemotherapy prior as you wait for the transplant to be prepared. Um, If I'm choosing to start some form of chemotherapy before transplant, I might think about whether they have AML-like features or other features that would make me intensify my treatment? Um, based on the patient substrate as well, You know, can they handle this kind of intensification or is it too toxic? And then also thinking about what kind of transplant are they going to get if they're going to reduce intensity transplant? Um, is it worth thinking about optimizing the disease more or doing something after transplant to try to prevent relapse? Typically, that would also still be in the context of a clinical trial. If I'm not sure about transplant, maybe I just meeting them it's a little unclear how active or whether that's in their goals um then I'm often thinking about well how urgently do I need a response most of the time this is not going to be extremely urgent in mds and we're going to start with standard hma if I don't have a trial option sometimes particularly with people who have an aml like uh, profile I might consider AML-like therapy, and I think this is reflected in how we are recategorizing some uh, of the MDS cohorts. So, For instance, for patients who have MDS but also have an NPM1 mutation, I have been typically treating them more like AML, and I think that's reflected in how some of our WHO and ICCC guidelines have changed the classification of MDS and AML to potentially recognize that there are some AML-like mutations that really merit more of an AML-directed therapy. So I might assess the response, watch and wait, see if they do, how well they do on treatment. Some patients will do great and you're reevaluating whether maybe I should go to transplant. Some patients will really not do well with therapy and maybe you'll be glad that you didn't try to go through an intensive transplant with them. Some patients, you know, transplant is not really their goal. And while we know that azacitidine then is really the uh, only therapy associated with survival in that space, phase three setting, many patients will have differing goals For some people, even azacitidine may not be a therapy that they wish to pursue, and so I think that there is an expanding repertoire and nuance to uh, how we manage patients outside of the transplant setting. You know, the the reality though is that we have a very challenging disease, um, and. While we really are hoping to identify some new therapies, especially ways to use what we've uh, what has succeeded, so if if not everybody can go to transplant, can we get some of the graft versus leukemia effect from that by using an immunological target in MDS? Um, The reality is that many patients really will still have suboptimal outcomes. So I think this is an interesting infographic. uh, Uh, It was published in Leukemia and Lymphoma by Dr. Steensma. But, you know, kind of a way to think about what happens to patients after they get diagnosed with MDS. And the reality is that, unfortunately, many of them will die. Some will die from their disease, either from bleeding or infection. Some will die from... uh, uh, you know, progress to leukemia and and die after leukemic progression. Many of our patients, you know, they're older. They they have other uh, comorbidities. Many will die from comorbid conditions. It's important to recognize that, for instance, cardiovascular disease plays a big risk factor for our patients and um, and can be limiting for how we manage manage them. Uh, and even though I spent a lot of time talking about transplant, and I'd certainly like to get that therapy to more patients. The reality is very, very few patients actually go on to uh, receive allogeneic transplant. Of the 100 who have MDS, only six of them will actually uh, go to transplant. And uh, even with transplant, very few will be cured. Um, And so we have a long way to go and we have a long way to try to assess how do we do better for our patients. I think another challenge for our patients with MDS is that managing them is not a straightforward uh, task. When you can't make blood, you really are dependent on the healthcare system. And so we talk a lot about the worry that you might die or progress to leukemia. And certainly those are concerns, but perhaps just as impactful on MDS care is the amount of time that patients have to spend in clinic. They basically have a second home. You have to recognize that these patients, they have to travel to clinic. Uh, That might be hours to get to a specialized MDS center. Even uh, if they don't have to travel so far, um, they have to wait for a type and cross, and then they may have to spend a half a day to get red cells or platelets. Um, they may be admitted to the hospital with infections. I think it is a challenge when I have patients who really have higher risk disease, but the toxicity of starting on azacitidine can seem really insurmountable. And an area where we're evolving in MDS that other myeloid diseases as well as other cancers are a little bit more advanced is through targets and mutation targets. IDH1, IDH2, FLT3, these are some mutations that are seen more often in AML. There are subsets of patients with MDS that will have them. You can argue whether how much like MDS or AML that patient actually is, but uh, there are far too few patients who have an, an actionable target in MDS right now, um, and you know a lot of our research tries to identify new targets, but still we do we have too little to offer. And I think transfusion burden, like this 80 year old patient who I saw in clinic, she presented because of anemia. And even though she has a lot of risk factors to her disease, the one that's going to cause her symptoms first is her anemia. And that burden, transfusions, and how that impacts her life um, can be really deleterious for our patients. And so, with that, you know, we've talked about a lot of the management of patients with MDS. We've talked about some of the real challenges that patients who have MDS face, not just with the diagnosis, but also with management of symptoms and uh, comorbid conditions that may arise during treatment. The initial evaluation of MDS really is a specialized histopathological cytogenetic molecular analysis. And it's really by using all of those elements that we get a predictive uh, risk score. there are many scores available. Each one has strengths and weaknesses. Each one um, is getting more and more refined over time. You know the way I think about risk uh, prognostication in MDS is I'm really trying to make sure that I'm not missing high risk feature for a patient and that I'm providing care that aligns with their likely natural history. And so for patients who are going to live with their disease a lot. My main goal is to reduce the impact of uh, complications and to try to keep them doing as much of their uh, routine as possible. But many patients who have higher risk disease, that does pose a more immediate threat to them uh, with many dying within a year. And really then modification, so some sort of therapy that modifies the natural history of disease is the treatment that really is mainstay. And I think something that we're learning about, in addition to new targets for MDS, in addition to uh, new combinations of therapy, perhaps borrowed from AML, is that MDS arises in a state of immune dysfunction. And that this may play a role both in the progression of disease as well as may provide targets that we can employ in the treatment of MDS. A big goal would be to try to employ some sort of therapies that can teach our immune system to better control disease for longer. And a number of these alterations are being explored right now. The main drugs that are being used at this time in late-stage trials are really those agents that are targeting TIM3 and CD47. So with that, I'd like to thank you for participating in this activity and appreciate your attention.
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity,
1: go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.